All right. Well, it is uh, 6.30 by my clock, which means it is 6.30. So that's what we're going with. Uh, we are going to dive into uh, week four for us. Um, but before we dive into that, I want to pray for us, and then we will kick it all off. So let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for the chance to be able to gather, to learn more about your word. God, we ask that as we are endeavoring to do this well, um, that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would give us endurance to be able to um, stay with the material as we move through it quickly. Um, Father, we pray that you would give us insight into how to read the Bible um, properly and that we would be able to understand in a more complete way what it is that you have delivered to us um, through your word. And so, Father, we give you this time and we ask that you would be made much of. Uh, and as is my custom, I would ask that you would pray for me individually, uh, that the things that I say would be beneficial, that they would be clear, and that they would be uh, in accordance and in harmony with the gospel. So if you would, take a moment and pray that for me, if you would. Father, I pray that as we are racing through different texts uh, tonight, that we would be able to stay uh, all together as we are moving through thought for thought here. God, I ask that the words that I say would be timely, that they would be accurate, that they would be relevant, and that they would be beneficial for us and clear that we might understand. Uh, because this is an important task, and we ask um, that you would be here with us, that your Holy Spirit would be with me, that he would be here among us. Um, illuminating our hearts and our minds as to what the Bible says so that we might understand more fully. And God, we pray that this would be honoring to you and edifying to us. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, for a couple of new faces, uh, my name is Lee Woodmancy. I'm the discipleship pastor here. Um, we are in week four. And if this is the first time you've been here, then Perfect. You're here at the perfect time because there's no time like the present to hop into this. So I'm going to give us a quick rundown of where we are right now. This is where we are in our schedule. Um, for those of you who got, were here the first week, I had a handout. If you want this thing printed out, I can get you one. That's no big deal. Uh, so if you want a copy of that, just grab me whenever we're done here and I'll get you hooked up. But um, we have already covered basically our overview and our introduction. And then we spent the last two weeks talking about Bible formation and organization. So how did we get the Bible in the form that we have it now? Because that actually helps us, um, helps us with some information moving forward um, as we are progressing through our content. So last week we really answered three basic questions. And those questions were, can we trust what the Bible says to us? How did we get the Bible into our hands today? That's the transmission. And what translation of the Bible should I use? And how is the Bible translated? So that's what we talked about last week. So this week what we're going to do is we're going to move towards these, towards these interpretive guidelines. So I've got this week and next week. Um, and what I promise to you tonight is that we are going to be talking about some things that every single person in this room, if you are a believer, you do this intuitively. You naturally do these things. And all I'm going to do is press you to explain what it is that you do. All right, so it's going to be some dialogue. I'm going to call on Sue, and I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that whatever answer she gives is the wrong answer, right? We're going to do that. But I'm going to, I promise you, you know what we're talking about. I'm just going to give us some vocabulary to, like, uh, surround those ideas. So here's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to talk about the importance of right interpretation. 
So when we talk about hermeneutics, hermeneuo from the Greek word that means to interpret or to translate, we are now getting into hermeneutics proper. So why is it so important that we interpret properly? We'll talk about that. Who is responsible for right interpretation is going to be the next question. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in interpretation because that's a big deal, right? So here is where we have been the last two weeks. I will have this slide up here every single time to give us a reminder of major things from the last two weeks. The first three things that we have up there are like our core convictions about the Bible. Number one, the Bible is a book about Jesus Christ. It is a book about Jesus Christ. We're really gonna hit on that next week when we start talking about the meta-narrative. But the Bible is a book about Jesus Christ. Number two, the Bible is a unified story. You might even smash those two things together and say the Bible is a unified story about Jesus Christ. Yeah. Third point is that as we are looking through the Bible's story, um, we come to know Jesus in all of his glory. We see this progressive revelation about who the Messiah is, and we learn his name and what it is that he came to accomplish, and we see what the end times will be like eventually, yeah? So those were the big points from two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about dual authorship, or actually that was two weeks ago as well. Dual authorship is a big deal, and we must hold to that, but last week we really hit on inerrancy. And that if we deny inerrancy, a whole lot of problems start presenting themselves. And what we said last week is, I believe in inerrancy because of the internal logic and evidence within Scripture, not because of what happens if I deny inerrancy. That's important, but the reason I believe it is because of what the Bible says about itself. So, inerrancy is a big deal, and when we talk about transmission, how we got the Bible from one copy to what you have in your lap, Transmission and translation is not as simple as just a guy wrote it and you have it. Yeah? So there's a little more to it. If y'all have any questions about this stuff, all of this is recorded. We're going to have this on YouTube um, next, uh, either tomorrow or Friday. So if you want to rewatch all this or if you want to listen to it while you're doing dishes or whatever, you can make that happen. Yeah? So let us talk about the actual stuff that we're here to talk about in this, uh, this class. So. If we are going to rightly interpret the scriptures, let me give us a big overview of what the full process actually is. Um, this is something that, again, I feel like if you are a mature believer and you've been taught how to read the Bible, you, you kind of intuitively do this. But I want to give us some very pointed approaches to how to read the scriptures, how to interpret the scriptures. Okay, Here's the number one point that we have to see. We must prepare by praying. Right? There must be prayerful preparation. If we assume, with dual authorship, that God and man wrote this, and we assume that through the Bible, through the scriptures, we have God's lordship attributes of his control and his authority over our lives, if that's true, then whenever we come to this book, you shouldn't just come to it willy-nilly. Right? There's a reason why we pray before we do Bible studies. There's a reason why we pray before we do stuff like this. There's a reason why we pray before you hear somebody crack open the word. That goes all the way down to the personal level. We should be praying about how God is gonna use this in our lives, and we'll walk, work through that here a little bit more in just a moment. Um, one of the reasons why we really want to pray about this is because what we call the noetic effects of the fall. And that's a big $5 word that basically means that because of sin, your rational capability to understand what is right in front of you has been corrupted. 
every aspect of who we are as human beings has been tainted by sin, period. There's not a single area of our lives as humans that has not been touched and affected by sin in some way, including our minds, including our volitional will, our desire to do things, and our rational faculties. If that's true, then prayer for the Holy Spirit to come and help lift us up out of that to be able to rightly understand what it is that he has written for our instruction, that seems like it'd be a pretty good idea, yeah? So, prayerfully prepare. Second thing is, we've got to make good observations. You have to make good observations about what you are reading. If you are reading a text and you are like, I don't even know what those words mean, right? Maybe it's a translation issue, but maybe it's just an issue of, you just don't understand what those words are, and maybe you need to go get some dictionaries or Bible uh, dictionaries that can be able to help you out with some of these more technical um, terms. But if you can't comprehend what you're reading, you're not going to be able to make good observations about what is happening in the text. What are some key ideas that are being put forward? You have to be able to make good observations. If you are watching an old Western, and the first shot is of a gross kind of sweaty dude, and the first thing he does is kick a puppy and then spits in this really nasty way and starts smoking a cigar. What color is his hat? Black. I didn't even have to tell you he was the bad guy, but you knew it. And the moment that you see that black hat, you're like, yes, bad guy. You see somebody who's out mending some fence or roping some cattle and then goes to a, a bucket and gets some water and he looks sweaty like he's actually been doing real work. And then you see his head. What color is his hat? White. Because he's the good guy. Are you tracking with me? You have to be able to make good observations. Now, unless the author or the movie maker or whoever is intentionally trying to show some kind of redemptive arc from the bad guy who eventually starts wearing like a gray hat and then he has a white hat on at the very end. Like, you already understand that I need to be able to pay attention to who this is. Um, I remember watching The Magnificent Seven. And if you ever watch The Magnificent Seven, every single time there's like a long shot of a landscape and there are people. What do you do when you see those people in a movie called The Magnificent Seven? If you're like me, you start counting them. You start counting them, because I need to know if they're all there or not. You have to make good observations, yeah? You didn't know it, but your old Western movies are coming into use right now, yeah? So, you have to prayerfully prepare, you gotta make good observations, and then you make right interpretations. You have to make right interpretations. If I see the cat who had kicked the puppy, and had spit on somebody, and broke a beer bottle, and has a black hat on, and then I assume, good guy. That's what he is. Are you going to understand what's going on with that dude's character for like the rest of the movie until it gets corrected? Like, no, you did not interpret all of those things that the movie maker was trying to show you and not tell you. When we come to a biblical text, they're telling you, not showing you at times. So you've got to make those good observations and then build upon those to have right interpretations because that's where we really get into the work that we're going to talk about today. And after we make those right interpretations, we make legitimate applications. And we're really going to talk about this next week when we start talking about uh, approaching Scripture from the very beginning as though it needs to be applied to your life every single time. There's a demand that we do that. So once we've pray, uh, prepared through prayer, we've made good observations about whatever it is we're reading, 
and then we've interpreted it correctly, then we apply it to our lives. Yeah? So, here's the question I have for us. Is there a correct and or incorrect way to read scripture? And I mean that intentionally, read. Is there a wrong way to read scripture? No specific answer I'm looking for here, Sue, so I'm not going to ding you for giving me the wrong one. You better leave me alone. I'm going to drop this glass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming back to you later. I won't pick on you just yet. So is there a right or a wrong way to read Scripture? Bobby? Is it best way and... I said incorrect or correct. Okay. I'm trying to catch you here. Right. Yeah? So what's your answer? I think even if you're reading it incorrectly, it's better than not reading it at all. Okay. So... If you are reading it incorrectly, so if you don't prayerfully prepare and make good observations and write interpretations, that there is still some kind of benefit from it. Yeah? I think it would, I think you are correct. I would have a really hard time, like, describing the evidence that I would use to support that, but I think we, I think we agree, generally, that, yes, I do think there can be some benefit there. John? I would say, just to support Bobby on this. Okay, to help Bobby out. Okay. The supernatural miracle of God, everything he does, especially his word to us, and how, you know, this is one of the things that was seminar years ago that I went to. Guy uh, pointed out that God's word has miraculously applied all ages, mm -hmm. all cultures, yes. all so God's word, and we're really hitting in on like the authorship of God, that he was instrumental in writing precisely what he wanted for us for a, for a reason, to apply to our lives. Um, I agree. Yes. I think uh, the, the phrase I think I used last week, and I think I was looking at you, Harvey, so that's why I'm looking at you now, is I said that if God can transcend the grave, I think he can transcend language. When we talk about translations and that there are some that are good and some that are better, but I still think that God can transcend those things. Sue, what were you saying? I agree. Yes. See, look there. I'm we're good tracking. to go. Good to go. You are tracking. That one doesn't count. <laughs> that one does not count. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to read 2 Timothy 2.15. So the second person in their Bible to go to 2 Timothy 2.15. I want you to read that for me. So someone over here. I want 2 Timothy 2.15. And I want somebody over here, 2 Peter 3.15 through 16. And again, the second person who gets there, I need you to read it out loud. Let's start with our 2 Timothy 2.15. Are you the second person? Then read it out loud. That's the point. If you don't know, just read it out loud. You assume. Giving the true word in the right way. Does anyone have another translation there of 2 Timothy 2.15? correctly explains, right? The word there in Greek, if you kind of turn it into a really wooden translation, it comes out as rightly dividing. So you're rightly handling it. So if we were to take 2 Timothy 2.15, I think the answer would be, there's probably a wrong way if Paul is saying, hey, make sure you're showing yourself to be a workman approved and that you are rightly explaining the scriptures. So I think there is a right way at a minimum 
And if we're going to assume that, then we should also assume there's probably a wrong way. Somebody look at Second Timothy, me, Second Peter three fifteen through sixteen. Whoever the second person is, read it out loud. I've got it. Have at it, Sue. And remember, got hey, that's perfect. That's good. Deliberately stupid. Yep. So they deliberately twist. Does anyone have another translation of Second Peter three fifteen, that little section? That they twist the other scriptures? Yes, ma'am. Alita. Uh, and it's They twist the scriptures. They mess with it intentionally. So, if we're going to read 2 Timothy 2.15, be a workman approved, rightly handling, rightly dividing, rightly teaching, and then Peter says, yeah, there are people who read other scriptures. His example is Paul, which is one reason why the New Testament is authoritative, is that the New Testament authors consider it authoritative. He says, man, they do the exact same thing with Paul. They twist it intentionally. Yeah. So... If there is a right and a wrong way, what's the next step for us? Is that the same thing as taking it out of context? I would think that is an apt application. To take a text out of context is a big deal. I'm going to pay you $5 because you were looking at my notes, weren't you? So, let's do this. Can anyone give me an example of a commonly misused verse that is inappropriately interpreted or applied and I'll just give you a hint think about your coffee mug verses I'm gonna your the mugs that you have that have a have a have a, 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 a verse from scripture a lot of times them jokers are just absolutely ripped out of context and they probably don't mean what you think they mean does anyone want to take a stab and step on someone else's toes so it's not me doing it I think Lindsay's got one she's gonna come Paul Paul had his hand up first so you're coming, you're coming, coming back around to you. Paul, what you got? Jeremiah. Does anybody want to read that for me? That is Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. Jeremiah 29. Put this on a throw pillow. I'm telling you, you're going to love it. Somebody want to read for me Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13? You can't read all the way, baby. Whoever gets to Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's read that. Sue... Well, no, it's Sue Major in the back. Sorry, I, I, I just should have thrown first and last. Sue Major, what you got? Eleven through thirteen. Yes, ma'am. Let's just hold it right there. You can keep reading, and you get a little bit more context. But normally, what people quote is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. 
I have great plans for you, not to bring you harm, but to make you prosper. Who is writing that? The weeping prophet, Jeremiah. What is he about to have happen in his community? The Babylonians are about to come and destroy Jerusalem. So, but what we're doing is we're taking the first part of that verse and we're saying, oh no, God loves you and he's got a great plan for you, not to harm you, but to make you prosper. Well, yes, if you keep reading the context, he's going to talk about after the exile, you're going to come back and you're going to repent. But what is going to happen between then and now? He's going to wreck everything intentionally. Somebody have another verse. Lindsay, did you have one in your pocket or, or are you ashamed of like, do you have something on, do you have something on like, a, uh, like a mug or something with you right now? Okay. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, through Christ who strengthens me, like including putting it under my eyes and go run touchdowns at the University of Florida, right? Tim Tebow, like literally, he had that all over his face. I am not at all saying that God does not give strength to those who believe in him to accomplish the task that he's given them. I'm not at all saying that. But what I am saying is Philippians 4.13 is not about running a football into the end zone. It's not. Philippians 4.13, in context, is Paul talking about, I know what it is like to have plenty and to have nothing, to go hungry and to get beat. And yet I persevere because Christ can do anything he wants in my life and he can give me the strength to do it. Now, does that include running footballs? Sure. But is that what Philippians 4.13 is about? No. This is why it's important. And we all intuitively know when we've heard somebody quote a verse and you're just like, ah, I don't, I don't know about that one. Like, I, I think you're using that incorrectly. Prayerful preparation, good observations, right interpretations, legitimate application. Yeah? Am I saying that the, the scriptures don't teach that God will give us strength for running footballs into an end zone? I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is Philippians 4.13 is not primarily about that. Yeah? Cool. We can go on for more of that, but in case I've stepped on toes enough, just blame Paul and Lindsay. They're the ones that mentioned it, so it's their fault. All right, so here is the next question that we want to address. Who is responsible for the right interpretation of a text? Don't give me your answer yet. Answer this part first. There are generally three options. Give me those three options as to who is responsible for making right interpretations. Who are those three people, things, categories? Say again. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Okay. What's another option? Teachers. Teachers. Okay. So you would look specifically at those who have the responsibility to be the one in Second Timothy um, who are showing themselves as workmen approved, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. Those are the teachers. Okay. Somebody else want to take another stab? The church. The church. Right. And so whether that's teachers or whether it's collectively us doing this task together. We will talk about that next week, so if I don't call on you for next week on this, you let me know. Generally speaking, you either have the author, the one who is doing the communicating, the text itself, or the person reading it or receiving that communication. Generally speaking, those are our options that we have. Either the guy who wrote it, the text itself is authoritative in and of itself, or what I do with it, that I am the one who is responsible for right interpretation. So, just with those three categories, who would we say is responsible? 
Bobby? The person reading it. I agree. Because if you are not responsible for making right interpretations, what are we doing in here? Right? Because if it was just, oh, we have the right interpretation, come to Leewood and he'll give you the binder on all the right things, then just take this. But that's not what we do, right? Here's a little bit of a different question, though. Who is the one who determines the meaning of a text? You have the author, the text, and the audience, the one who is reading. So it's a slightly different question. Who is the one who determines the meaning of a text? Bobby? Why would you say the author? There's no way we can know what that dude was going through. Why would you say the author? It's infallible, inerrant, right? What we talked about last week. But if I'm skeptical about any of those things, my claim is gonna be, man, we're talking at least 2,000 years, if not 3,500 years for some texts in the Old Testament. How can you trust that you would even know what was going through that dude's head? Well, this is why dual authorship is such a big deal. You are correct. Jeremiah, when he was writing this in, you know, the. 6th century BC or whenever it was that he was writing, yeah, that is, you know, 2,500 years ago. However, is Jeremiah the only author for that text? No. God and man wrote scripture, and that's how it is unified, and that is how it leads to Jesus and reveals him in his glory. So, the answer is, ultimately, the author is the one who determines the meaning of a text. This is one reason why my wife hates philosophy and literature classes whenever she had to take them in high school and in college. Because when you get to that point where you're reading something and some, somebody's like, well, what do you think the author meant by this? And then you give what sounds like a learned example of what you might deduce from this poetry, and then you immediately get slammed because like, no, 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 that's not it. Like, well, okay. Right? I think that exercise is worthwhile, but whenever we are coming to Scripture, you've, we do have more than just what our intuition tells us on how to go about determining what the original intended meaning was by the author. Right? So, here's what I want to say for us. Whenever we ask that question of who is responsible for right interpretation and who determines meaning, here's how that works out in Bible studies at times. And I'll put it on college students because I see this happen all the time. College students will get together and they will read a text and then they will say, hey, what does this verse say to you? What does it mean to you? If we hold to this idea that you as the reader are the one who determines what that text actually means, then no matter how absurd your conclusions are, they are just as valid as someone who has all sorts of evidence as to what they would say that text means. Because you are the arbiter of what is true. Are you, are you seeing how that can be problematic? Another way that this thing can be problematic is that whenever we say something like, the Bible says it, and that's the end of it. The Bible says it, I believe it, that's the end of it. I would argue... No, that is not the end of it. And let me read something for you. In Psalm 14, verse 1, the quote is, there is no God. That's in the Bible. Now, the first part of that psalm is, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
But no, 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 it doesn't matter because the Bible says this thing. And our natural knee-jerk reaction is to go, well, just why'd you jump in the middle of that? Why didn't you just take half a step back and read the first part? Doesn't matter. The Bible says it. You see what I'm already explaining to you. You know you do this already. Like, you would intuitively just take a step back. If, I, if somebody were to present to you, this is what the Bible says, that there is no God. You would want to know the text. And then when you would read it, you'd go, yeah, but like the first four words are really critical. So you see what I'm getting at here? That like we intuitively are going to say, no, 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 there's more to it. And it's, and it's in the, the text that we see as a whole. It's not just in those five words. It's in the greater context. That's where we're going to get into genres and all that stuff next week. But here's the point. We have got to hold the dual authorship whenever we say that, yes, we are responsible for right interpretation, but the author is ultimately responsible for the meaning. Yes, our job then is to get back to what their original meaning was, to discover what the authorial intent was. Whenever Paul is writing to the Galatians, he is going to use some vocabulary that might be unique to the Galatians that he's not going to use in Colossians. Now, that doesn't mean that those are two radically different things, but it just means that that tells us what he was intending to communicate. Yes? So our job is to interpret, yes, but that's not just the end of the story. All right. What we're trying to do, and this is where I come back around to saying, you do this intuitively. I'm just challenging you to describe like what you do and now giving you some language to do it well. Yeah? Questions so far? Have I stepped on some toes? Possibly. That's okay. I got some band-aids. We'll get you fixed up at the end of this. Yeah? All right. So here is one of the underlying assumptions that we must make is that the biblical authors have written in such a way to convey meaning. If they didn't intend to convey meaning, why are they writing? Yes? This is like the fundamental elements of communication, that where you have someone who is encoding, and you have the message, and you have someone who is decoding, which would be the author, the text, and the reader. Like, we must assume that they are actually trying to communicate something to me. Um, and if that's true, then our job is now just to discover what they meant. We are not bestowing upon a text, some foreign authority upon it because we discovered it. Like, no, no, it's there. That's what the author intended. And we have to untangle some of this stuff here in a bit. But what I want to say is we do this naturally, and let me show you what I mean. I'm going to read for us Judges 4. Judges 4 is the story of Deborah, who's one of the judges who sat under the oaks of Mamre. And there's this cat named Balak, who is, his, who is her general. And they are fighting this king named Caesarea, not Caesarea, yeah, Caesarea. Uh, Caesarea. Um, and so the battle is over. They're trying to hunt down this king. This is where we're going to pick it up in verse 21 of chapter 4 of Judges. But Yael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Does this story sound familiar? One of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's just there to read, right? Then she softly went to him and drove the peg into the temple of his head until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. Verse 22, And behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera, and Yael went out to meet him and said, Hey, come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And so he went to her tent 
And there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. That text is 100% metaphorical, is it not? That didn't actually happen, correct? Of course it did. Every one of us, when we're reading that, is just like, yeah, that's, that's kind of wild, but that's like the details of the story. This is historic recounting of events, yes? Is there anything within that text that would give us a clue that we are meant to read it in any other way than this is an accurate recounting of what happened? No. What then should we do, knowing that information? You should read as though Yael went and got this dude some warm milk, literally. Dude was sleepy. She got him some food. She covered him up. She went outside and got a tent peg and then one-shot this cat into the ground and killed him dead, right? That is how we are meant to read that. There is nothing in the text that tells us, well, but that really stands for this. Are you, you seeing that? Like, it's that important. Let me give us another example. Psalm 42. Somebody read Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2 for me. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. I'm going to have to pick it up, but we're going to make it happen. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. Second person who gets there, read that for me. Psalm 42, 1. Go ahead, Ashley. David is writing, my soul pants for God just like a deer pants for water. And what we know from that text is David literally means that you have some kind of deer spirit soul in you that can get thirsty and need some kind of soul water. Yes, is that exactly what he means? And you're shaking your heads because you're like, no, that's dumb. Correct. Why do we know that's not what he means? What kind of literature is this? It's poetry. And if it's poetry, what do we anticipate to run into? Poetic language. Like, my soul is like a deer panting for waters. What is it that David is communicating there? That you have a, a, a deer spirit soul thing in you that needs soul water? Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying you need God. I need God. Right? And we know that because it's in a different genre. Let me give us another one. I'll read this one because it's a bit, of a bit of a slug. This is Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Again, go read this. It's in the Bible. You can just turn there and find this. It's wild stuff. Listen to some words that, are, that I'm going to emphasize, and you tell me how we're supposed to read this. Ezekiel chapter 1, starting in verse 13. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and from among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. And now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, for each one of the four had them. And as the appearance of the wheel and their construction, their appearance was like a gleaming of barrel. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. And we know that's precisely exactly what he wrote, and you have exactly what that is in your mind, yes? No. Because what is Ezekiel doing here? What kind of language is he using over and over? It's like. It's like fire, and there's lightning coming out of it. Like, if you hadn't seen Harry Potter, you may not even have, like, a reference for what that might look like. 
But that's the point. He is grasping at language that he has at his disposal to try to communicate something to us that is awe-inspiring. Yes, when you read visions and you read prophecy like this and uh, even just go read Revelation, you're going to run into this a lot. Does that mean, what is beryl? Does anyone know what beryl is? It's a stone. What does it look like? Yellowish brown? What like? Exactly. Like, here's the point. Like, is that precisely what he saw? I, I don't know, but the point is, that's what he had at his disposal to communicate to us. And so we read that differently than Yael taking a tent peg and one shot in this king. We read it differently. Here's the last one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. Matthew 5, verse 30. And this is where I might step on someone's toes. And I promise you, I got band-aids. Right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. Somebody read that for me. You got to get your running shoes on in here because we're moving. We're moving quick. Who said that? So, I want everybody to raise their right hand. Everybody, raise your right hand because none of us have lopped that joker off, have we? Why not? What do you mean? It's in the Bible. It says it. I believe it. That finishes it, right? Because, because when we prayerfully prepare and we make good observations and we make right interpretations, we come to the conclusion that Jesus is using hyperbolic language. Hooper, above, beyond, balo is the word to throw. So he is throwing the language beyond to prove a point. And what is his point there in Matthew 5? If you've got a sin problem, you deal with it swiftly. You deal with it deliberately. You handle that sin issue. And he uses hyperbolic language with plucking an eye out and cutting a hand off. But his point is that sin's a big deal. All four of those texts from four very different places from the Bible, we didn't read a single one of those the same way, did we? And you do that the moment you read it. My children are reading the Bible now. They don't have that skill. And so a lot of our conversations are, okay, well, I know that's what she said. I know. I know that that's what Jesus said, but like, why don't we do that? Or why do you have your right hand, Daddy? Well, that's because I've got to teach her that. But as mature believers, as someone who's been reading the Bible for a while, do you not already just intuitively do this to some degree? You're doing hermeneutics. What I'm trying to do is give us a little more skill as to how to do that better. Yeah? All right. Um, I'll just run through this real quick. Authors can intend for there to be multiple meanings in a single text at once. Two big examples I would give. In John chapter 3, uh, verse 7 through 8, there's one more in 1 John I'll look at. John chapter 3, 7 through 8, Jesus is having a conversation with this dude named Nicodemus, and he kind of rocks his world saying, hey, you've got to be born again, brother. I know you're a teacher of Israel, but you must be born again. And the word that he used there is from uh, ganao, to be born, and uh, anothen, which means again. And when Nicodemus hears that, he goes, okay, Jesus, like, you're telling me I got to go back into my mother's womb? Like, how can I do that, man? What are you talking about? You're crazy. And then Jesus says this. I'll read the John 3 text. 
He says this, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The word for spirit there is pneumati. The word for wind there is pneumati. He's like, man, he's trying to, John is trying to give us a hint saying, like, you're already hearing this wrong. The word for anothen can mean to be born again, or it could also mean to be born from above. What is Jesus telling Nicodemus there? When he says, you've got to be born from above, and he hears again, he tries to give him another hint, like, hey, you know the Spirit does whatever he wills. So what is John, what is Jesus trying to communicate? You're hearing two different things. There's this natural second birth, but I'm talking about a spiritual birth. John does the exact same thing in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and he keeps using this word cosmos, which means world or the creation. Um, that can stand in for like sinful desires of mankind. It can mean humanity as a whole, but it can also mean like the world, like terra firma, right? It can mean the earth. And John plays with that word, and he's communicating that for those of you who are desiring the things of the world, you've got to know that the world is passing away. You see how he can intend two different meanings that really bring us to one point? So there can be more than one meaning, but that's really based off of if an author is intending for that to happen. Okay, I got four minutes to blaze through this. What then do we do as believers? Are we left to our own devices? And the answer to that is no. What do we have at our disposal as believers in Jesus to help us prayerfully prepare, make good observations, make right interpretations, and then apply it legitimately? Jenny, say it out loud for the people in the back. The Holy Spirit. You are not left to your own devices. So here's the first thing I want to say. Non-regenerate people do not have the Holy Spirit. They do not have the Holy Spirit. If you remember in math class and algebra, the transitive property of A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Let's run it this way. If you are not regenerate and you have not trusted in Christ, you do not have the Holy Spirit. And if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you will not understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this. So 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you are regenerate, if you have trusted in Christ, Ephesians 1 says you have the Holy Spirit who has sealed you. And that Ephesians 2 is you were physically or you were spiritually dead, but now you are alive. I now am regenerate. I trusted in Christ. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. I am now able to rightly comprehend the spiritual aspects of Scripture. You seeing that? This means that as our job as interpreters is, yes, you are responsible for rightly interpreting Scripture, but you are not on your own. Yes? Praise God for that. My, uh, my Hebrew professor... Was a, was a cat that was wild. Like he was a legit polyglot dude, knew like 50 languages, right? Wild. And whenever he uh, started the class, our first Hebrew class, he says, men, we are going to pray because outside of God's help, you will not learn this. And just started praying. And I'm like, wow, Dr. Gentry, thanks. 
But I think he's right. If we want to really discern what's going on in the scripture, we need the Holy Spirit's help, which is why I'm going to say again, we should begin any Bible reading with prayer. If we have, in fact, had every aspect of who we are as human beings who are created in the image of God, if we have, in fact, been tainted by sin in some way and have been broken and fractured by that, including our uh, reasoning faculties, we need help. So start by seeking help. Simple enough. And here's the next part, is the Holy Spirit continues the work that Jesus began in delivering truth. Um, you can look in John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. John 14, 25 and 26. I'll read that for us. This is what Jesus says. The things I have spoken to you while I am still with you is, uh, I'm sorry, these things I have spoken to you. This is in his big upper room discourse. We preached on that back in the end of spring. So if you want to listen to the Abide series, go do that. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I've said to you. You are not left on your own. Praise God. Yes, because if it's just me, we're hosed. If it's just me and a pile of books, we're still hosed. If it's me with a whole library of books, we are still hosed because you need help. And that's fine because that's precisely how God has designed this to work. Yes? So, what does the Holy Spirit do? This is our last slide, and then we're going to have questions. The Holy Spirit helps illuminate a text. Let me ex describe what that means, and we'll read here in just a moment. Um, illumination, this is from uh, uh, Rob Plummer, who was my Greek instructor, a uh, guy who wrote this book, um, Southern Seminary professor. This is what he says. The Spirit does not whisper some secret meaning inaccessible to others, but what the Spirit does do is enable us to perceive new facts and judge the plausibility of arguments with greater clarity. And what he's talking about there in like on a larger scale is that you have a human responsibility to keep having facts shoved into your head. And the more that you pile in there, the more the Holy Spirit has at his disposal to bring to your remembrance, to remind you of and say, that's right. See how that works? This isn't some kind of secret knowledge that we're not Gnostic. Right? There's not some secret that we are keeping hidden from people and then we finally spring it on somebody and I've jet out of the world. Like, that's not how this works. But the Holy Spirit does reveal to us. However, this is something that we need to understand about those who are unregenerate. What are the people who don't have the Holy Spirit, what do they do? Plummer addresses that as well. This is what he says. The fact that non-believers can understand portions of Scripture does not deny illumination, the illuminating work of the Spirit, but instead points to God's common grace in giving it to all humans. Your faculties and your reasoning and your logic, your mind brain, have been affected by sin. Yes. However, it's not completely gone. And God's grace is what gives you the ability to read something and say, that seems true. When I read Ecclesiastes 3.11, even before I was a believer, I read Ecclesiastes 3.11, and it says that God has placed eternity into the hearts of men. I didn't have a clue what that meant. But I'm sitting there reading it going, yeah, I, I don't know what to do with it, but that seems right to me. I need someone to show me the rest of this and give me an answer for what that means. 
but I got that. So God in his grace does give us enough to work with, as it were. Um, Write those verses down. Go read them later. It'll tell you all about illumination and how the Holy Spirit, when Jesus is teaching, the Holy Spirit comes and provides more information, right? We're not going to go into that because we're running out of time. Here's the last point. The Holy Spirit, and we're going through the next one up there. The Holy Spirit, as you were reading, demands obedience. If the biblical authors, including not just the dude who wrote it, but also, you know, the Holy Spirit, is intending to write in such a way to communicate something to you, to your life, it's not now optional for us to, like, do something with it or not. It is intended for it to be applied into our life. One, prayerfully prepare. Two, make good observations. Three, make right interpretations. Four, make legitimate applications. We must do that every time we come to the scriptures. Yes? So, that's the starting point for our interpretive guidelines. It's 7.18 and I got 12 minutes and I'm supposed to have 15 for Q&A. My apologies. I still have not hit the 15 minute mark. That's on me. So, we covered a lot. That was a lot. I get it. What questions do you have? What can I clarify? Is there something else that maybe I just blew right past that you need me to say again? We got, we got 12 minutes and we're going to use every one of them. Rich. Not necessarily a question, but a comment. Comment. Yes, sir. So Jesus himself said, had a lot to say when mm-hmm. he was on earth. And there's all those red letters in the New Testament. Yeah. And he spoke in parables a lot. Yes, he did. That the disciples and others had a little bit of difficulty understanding. But he always said, he said a lot. Yeah. He who has ears. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Yes. So I think that that's what he's saying is you have to work at it and be very honest with yourself. If you are really seeking the truth, and then you will understand. Yep. But he's warning you if you're not willing to seek When we get to November 9th and November 16th, we're going to hit on that. And this is one of those principles that whenever we come to a parable, one of the major principles is that Jesus is intentionally obscuring while revealing. He is saying things in a way that people who are not having any intention to actually hear the real teaching that he's wanting to say, that they're just going to hear it and it's going to come in one ear and out the other. But then there are going to be those who have ears to hear and they come to him and say, Master, Lord, Rabbi, whatever, explain this. Every time that happens, you know what Jesus does? He blows them off and he goes to the next town, right? No. Every time that he's asked, he gives an answer. Right? So whenever we get to the gospel genres, we're definitely going to hit on that a lot. Sue, yes, ma'am. See, I didn't even pick on you. Uh-oh, there's still time. Talking about a non-regenerate person. Yes, ma'am. And I had a Hindu friend who... Okay. Mm-hmm. when he found the Bible in his college bed. Okay. And uh, he was saved that way. So you're not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't work that no, way. No, no, no. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that um, the, the comment is if there is someone who is unregenerate, if they pick up the Scripture, if I were to say that they don't have the Holy Spirit active, you know, indwelling in them, there's no way for them to discern anything spiritual in that. 
And that's not actually my comment. My comment is that they are not going to be able to grasp those things outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. And if he is not working on someone's heart to lead them to salvation, um, we talked about the order of salvation uh, last Sunday when we talked about um, the Baptist Faith and Message article on salvation. One of those steps that I believe is part of that is what we call the effective call. And that when God calls someone to salvation, he is drawing them to himself first and foremost, I think, through the act of the Holy Spirit working on their their life. Regeneration is a complete and total work of the Holy Spirit. And if he is going to use a dream, a vision, a track, some dude preaching and doing evangelism, or a friend sharing coffee with him and sharing the gospel that way, the Holy Spirit is what brings about salvation and regeneration in that regard. There you go. Yeah, so I mean, whenever you see these like kind of radical kind of conversions that are like that, how could we deny that the Holy Spirit was active in that? Can't. I agree. Other comments or questions? Yes, sir. Paul. Okay. Words don't necessarily mean the same thing. Correct. To you that they do to me. Okay. Words don't mean the same to me as they do to you. Yes. Is there is there more to that thought? I'm sorry. Well, it's part of the problem with the King James. Mm-hmm. It uses words that had a 1611 meaning. Particular meaning then, yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that and where I would categorize that is saying like that's our, our role of making good observations. If you don't understand the word. Me and Anthony actually were talking about this word. C.S. Lewis describes it in Mere Christianity, and this used to be the standard word to talk about this up until probably 50, 60 years ago. What does the word charity mean? So that was Rich, and who else said that? Charity. Okay. So Donna? Love. Someone who, is, someone who is 35 or younger, what does charity mean? It's giving. So that's exactly your point right there. Now, whenever we run across the use of the word charity by good old Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, he explains that he's talking about love, this love that motivates you to do something. And what it comes out as in this generation is, well, that's stuff you give away and you help people. Well, we've kind of lost the, the motivation behind the word charity in the sense of like the common vernacular, but your point is well taken. And that's why I'd say we need to pray and prepare so that we can make good observations and rightly understand what those words even mean. Yep. Yeah? But that's a good point. I would want to highlight that. 1 Corinthians 13, that's what I think. 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, faith, hope, and love. If you read any other translation that's been put out in the last 40 years. Yeah. But that's, that's a well-taken point. R.O. Yes, sir. No man can serve two masters. Yes. Spirit. Correct. No man can serve two masters. No way. Absolutely. Incidentally, the word that Jesus uses there is not the word for money. You know what the word that he uses there? Mammon. And what is or who is Mammon. There's your homework for next week. Go Google it. I'm going to leave you hanging on that. 
Because he's using a very particular word that, yes, it means money. Let me be very clear. He means money. But he also is carrying a little bit stronger of a word that goes beyond money. It's Mammon. Yep, 2 Timothy 3.15. Yes, sir. Or yes, ma'am. Rightly dividing. I meant to bring uh, my coffee mug uh, from Southern Seminary because literally that part of 2 Timothy 3.15 is etched into one of the main buildings on campus, rightly dividing the Word of God. Right? And that's, that's what is literally inscribed on the building because that's what they are doing inside that building is teaching people to do that well. Yeah? And it's on the coffee mug. There's a connection. Paul, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So at some point, there's going to be people out there that will question that, especially not believers, and it might be the people that will sit there and question that in our walk with Christ. Mm-hmm. What would be your elevator pitch or your elevator statement to that person that's questioning? Yep. Yep. So the, the question is I have a guy who is questioning inerrancy. And I've got three minutes to explain to him that I believe that Jonah was a real dude who got swallowed by a real big fish, right? I believe that story. Where I would actually take him is to Jesus. Because Jesus says that y'all are demanding a sign, but I am going to only give you one sign. That's the sign of Jonah. And when Jesus is referencing back to Jonah, he is referencing in such a way that he is saying he was a real guy. He was a real person. And I will also admit, I am a presuppositionalist. I come into any of those conversations armed with the idea that I am going to trust the Bible. I am going to have a hermeneutic of faith. I am going to believe it, right? If Jesus is referring to Jonah as a real dude and his story that actually happened, and everyone in his circle also goes, well, yeah, okay, sign of Jonah. And they don't even blink at the notion of, like, he went to this place called Nineveh, and, you know, preached the weakest evangelistic sermon ever in an entire city repents, and no one questions that, then I don't think I have the grounds to do so either. I really don't. And what that would require is me taking him to Jonah and saying, yeah, is this wild? Yeah, go read the last five verses of Jonah. There's this vine that comes up in a leaf. And Jonah's like, excellent, I can watch the city burn from up here. And then God burns the leaf, and Jonah's like, why? Right? And, like, there's all this crazy stuff that happens, but I would take him to that and admit, yeah, that's some wild stuff. But let me show you where I find there being truthfulness in Scripture and what we know about Jesus and what we know about him to be a real man from history and what his life demonstrated. And even the internal evidence in Scripture indicates that he was a real man who really died and really resurrected. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there's some 500 brothers. Y'all can just go ask. They'll tell you. Don't even take my word for it. That's a really bold claim to make if there's, you know, not at least 500 dudes that could then stand up and say, yeah, I saw him. Make sense? So I am going to appeal to the internal evidence. I am. I must. Because that's how the Bible talks about itself. Does that make sense? So the elevator pitch is going to be brief, and you're going to gloss over a whole lot. And I would then immediately invite that person, so yeah, come, come check me on my logic, and I want to explain anything that doesn't make sense to you. And then you set the hooks in, and like, you get to studying, because now you're going to have to have some answers from this guy, right? Which is fine, because you have what you need.
Does that answer your question? I'm sorry, can you say that again, Paul? Yeah, same principle holds true for Adam and Eve. I believe Jesus refers to them. God gave marriage as this institution between a man and a woman. And what is the context that he's referring to? Adam and Eve. Well, if Jesus is appealing to that and everyone around him is like, yeah, what's your point? Well, then maybe there's some evidence there that we can stand on as well. Yeah? I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that it's going to be a simple answer, but I am saying that there are answers. Well, you can take any of the miracles in the Bible. Parting of the Red Sea doesn't mean real. We know it is. That's kind of the nature of miracles, right? They are miraculous. It's like whenever I asked, what is uh, uh, canonization? And our esteemed doctor, I asked, what is canonization? He says, the process of getting canonized. Yes, sir. <laughs> you are not wrong. That, at a minimum, you are correct. But there's also more, yeah, for sure. All right, other questions. We are at 7.30 right now, but so i got like less than a minute for a prayer. But any other questions I can throw out there or answer for you that you want to throw out? Next week, we are going to talk about the biblical meta-narrative, how the Bible is a unified story about Jesus. We're going to talk about how to apply the Bible to our lives, and then we're going to talk about how to identify what genre of literature we are reading. Because if we know what genre, we know when we read that Yael drove a tent peg through this dude's head in one stroke, we probably should read that as historical accounting as opposed to as the deer pants for water. We're going to talk about genres next week. Yeah? If you got questions, hang around here. I'll be up here at the front. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, we thank you that you have given us everything for life and godliness. Um, we are blessed to be able to have your word with us. And God, I pray that you would give us what we need to rightly understand it and to be able to show ourselves as workmen who don't, do not need to be ashamed of what we have done with your word. God, I pray that you would encourage us if uh, some of this has gone over our head, um, that we would be able to have conversations with other people to fill in those gaps and that we know um, that there are people around us who love us and will be able to explain some of these things if we need it. And so, Father, I thank you that first and foremost that we have Christ who has died for us and then we know that to be true through the scriptures. And we have your Holy Spirit residing within us if we have trusted in your Son to aid us in understanding what you have given to us. So, Father, we thank you for all of that and so much more. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. If you've got questions, I'll be hanging out up here.